Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel. I'm talking today with Dave Ockley, Amanda Serenevi, and Henry Fowler, editors and contributors of the new book, Inspiring Mathematics, Lessons from the Navajo Nation Math Circles, published by the American Mathematical Society and Mathematical Sciences Research Institute in 2019. This book emerged from a series of math circles that were conducted with students in Navajo Nation. The book comprises a rich set of scripts for interactive and discovery-based learning with detailed resource lists, problem sets, teacher guides, and connections to deeper mathematics. I'd like to give my guests as much time as possible to discuss the origins and contents of the book, so let me welcome them into the conversation now. Dave, Henry, Amanda, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. At the outset, could you give a brief introduction, each of you, uh, a little bit about your mathematical backgrounds and maybe some comments on your fellow contributors and editors to the volume? Sure. I could say Billigana times four. Henry might explain better why I'm saying that. Um, I'm a research mathematician at Kansas State. University. I've done mathematical outreach my whole career. When I was a graduate student at the University of Michigan, I helped initiate mathematics into uh, residential college. Um, I uh, ended up serving as the associate director at the Mathematical Sciences Research Institute from 2009 to 2012. When I arrived, there were 20 math circles there. When I left, there were 180, probably at least 150 that were active. Um, Tatiana Shubin uh, was early on active in the mass circle movement, and she had been leading mass circles since the mid-90s in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so I was collaborating with her there. She found me in January of 2011 and told me that she dreamed of working with indigenous populations. She wondered if I knew anybody. So I got to work that January trying to connect with indigenous populations and to try to raise money, and eventually via a chain through Mateusz Kowski and um, the White family in Ganado, uh, got an introduction between Henry and Tatiana, and things took off from there. We quickly added Amanda and have been moving forward since. I've been continuing to try to make contacts and raise funds ever since and will continue. And perhaps Amanda? Uh, Sure. I'm Amanda, and I'm the director of Riverbend Community Math Center in South Bend, Indiana. And I've been involved with math circles uh, since 2004, when I worked in um, Boston Math Circle. Um, as a leader for sessions there, and uh, as a graduate student when I was a graduate student at Boston University. And um, I was have been really honored and privileged to work on this project 
uh, for almost since the beginning, and it's been fantastic. It's been really great to get to know people from Navajo Nation and um, the beautiful places that we get to see while we're there. It's an amazing experience. And Henry? I've been involved in um, Mass Circles since 2012, and it, it's something new for me. And I've been a math educator at the high school level since 1996. I always had a passion about um, promoting math education for my people, Navajo Nation. And I try to come up with resources that will interest my students, that will inspire them and use the knowledge that they learn to go into a career that is related to STEM. And I see it as a uh, building the nation for Navajo Nation, building our infrastructure and combat poverty and all the social ills that we encounter on Navajo Nation. And I see mathematics as a gateway for our students since it was a gateway for me when I was growing up. Um, when I was in learning about mathematics, it was a gateway for me to uh, keep myself in line and as well as to set goals for myself. And mathematics it was a tool for me when I was in fifth elementary grade, junior high, high school, and it kept me out of trouble because mathematics, um, in a sense, inspired me. How problems were done by patterns and patterns led to discovery. And I want that same um, atmosphere and environment for my students to use, uh, especially use it as a way to look at the bigger picture that they were able to use the skills and knowledge from math to bring back the knowledge back to Navajo Nation, to build our own um, skills that's necessary, such as um, engineering, um, scientists, chemists, physics, and teachers, um, high school math teachers, educators, and computer, computer science, and cybersecurity, um, programming. So all of these uh, require a strong background in mathematics. And I learned that, that math circles is very unique because it tailored to inquiry, to exploration, and unique to how you, you think yourself as a person. And you can use what you know and build on the knowledge that you understand and especially make your connection to math mathematicians and that's very important because i learned that mathematicians are um, not part of the school system k through 12th grade and so i learned that um, mathematicians as a way for them to connect with teachers and students, community, parents, school administrators, 
and because they are the expert in the content area and I learned that also that um, masterclass brought all types of backgrounds of mathematicians, not just being a college professor, but they do have expertise at all, all level of different career levels, dimensions, that the nation, the, the overall nation depends on them. So, so we, we had um, Tatiana Shubin who contacted me when I was at Denna College in 2012 in the fall term. And it's been very successful since then, Navajo uh, Masterclass on the Navajo Nation. We open um, opportunities for students to interact with mathematics in an innovation way. And also they connect to math mathematicians from across the 50 states. And they are also mentors for the students. They can um, provide guidance and facilitate, um, provide resources for them. And also that they able to help them um, inspire their imagination, that there are more to see beyond Navajo Nation. There's more um, to do beyond what we have here on the Navajo Nation. And I really believe that um, Navajo Masterclass is um, making a huge impact on Navajo students, Navajo families, and our Navajo communities. And we, we, start, um, we started the math festival, which is in the spring term in, in April, where all the local schools would come and they would get busted in. So that's been very successful and where schools will come in and we have mass sessions that we rotate around um, from nine o'clock to about 2, 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So that's been going ongoing since 2012. And the math, um, summer math camp has been successful too. It runs in um, two weeks where we also offer them uh, math experience, math sessions from different mathematicians. And so it, it's growing so quick and fast that we never expected um, to grow this quick. And I really believe that um, our students are benefiting from this way of seeing mathematics in a different way than a regular um, math curriculum is delivered to them in, in the academic setting. They view math as only as um, a textbook base where they think that is mathematics and they don't relate to their real experience, to their cultural identity, who they are. And that piece is also is unique so our Navajo Masterful is integrated with culture, with um, Navajo language, and, and along with um, mathematicians helping along the way. And then the other one is that we, we invite mathematicians to come throughout Navajo Nation schools in the fall term and spring term, and they will run sessions all week 
for different schools who um, want that at their um, school, supplementing their math curriculum. And then teacher workshops have, has been very successful too. So teachers would come and they would train the teachers to run their own master schools at their own local school district. That's been very popular too. So it's, it's growing quick. Um, we want it to continue to expand. Um, now we um, launching Navajo Master Schools off of this to other indigenous um, communities as well too. Very cool. Oh, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. One thing that might be very nice to the listeners of the podcast is to hear the traditional Navajo introduction. It gets, uh, in my opinion, a great sense of community and respect for elders. Would you be willing to introduce yourself in that way? Please do. Yes, <laughs> Ado Totus Ahole Ade Keheshte. Ako the the Quishis Kanda e no settling Linigi, Silkado GK, Ultra and Linigi, Yego, Yit the Hado Inch or Hot Oil, Bassazido or Hot Upper Pansas Case, Beben Nache, Kaya, who is Argo e Hot Upper Bandesago, A. So I'm from Tonalia, originally from Tonalia, Arizona, where I grew up on the Navajo Nation. And my my family, they, they depended on um, livestock. So I was the family sheep herder for my family, where we took our sheep out before the sun came out and followed them to different pastures and where naturally water collected or a water spring where we took our sheep and we followed um, the different seasons, the pattern just to harvest water for our animals. And now I live um, in wheat fields Arizona, not far from Dena College, where my wife is from. And I, I continue to um, promote math education for my people and for Navajo Nation. And I, my introduction in Navajo is I'm a Bitterwater, who is my, my mother's side of the clan group. And my father's side is the Zuni Edgewater. So Henry, you've actually preempted several questions that I was interested in in asking about how this project came together and how it was especially it seemed to be especially well suited to Navajo Nation. Um, Dave, you mentioned that Tatiana Shubin was interested a priori in getting involved with indigenous communities. And Henry, you mentioned that math circles seemed to be a very good format or model for um, incorporating math education or combining math education with um, tr- uh, the traditions and culture of, of Navajo nations. So I wonder if you wanted to expand a bit on that. Yeah, we want our, our students to experience variety of different perspective. 
uh, we, we just don't want them to be a good citizen for Navajo Nation. We want them to be a good um, global citizen. And that diversity, that inclusion is very important. So our mathematicians, um, they come from different um, backgrounds as well and different experience. So I want them to appreciate um, different culture, different um, traditions, customs, food, and, and we will also want to have our guests to experience our rich culture, who we are as Navajo people. So we, we integrate um, traditional views about our Navajo people, our Navajo students. Their cultural identity is very important, especially our land, which is, is very, very precious. And, and we want our students to interact in the sense of using their language to understand and to, um, to gather knowledge that our way of, of communicating using the Navajo language is very powerful and also to instill that strong um, cultural identity of who they are through our Navajo language. So that's part of um, Navajo Circle. And even the introduction of who we are as Navajo, how I introduce myself, that's what we want our students to do too, is to introduce themselves because that brings um, relationship, that brings um, um, strength, motivation for them, and use that kinship to greet and communicate with each other. So that relationship that they build at math camps or math festival is a long-term communication and relationship that, that, that they continue to build on. And when summer math camp is over, it doesn't mean it's just over in two weeks. We want them to... Um, use uh, resources that they learn and communicate by email, by, um, by however way means to communicate and to motivate each other and to ins inspire one another. So that's um, Navajo kinship is very important. Then we make um, traditional food for our students so that they're able to um, see the math piece in it because Navajo math is uh, about um, relationship to our own body, and we 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 count by our hand span, and we count by our the distance by our our feet by our foot and into feet to count the measurement that way. So those type of uh, math that they interact and they feel like that's not math, but that's part of our own mathematical um, number sense building for our students and to become aware that math is embedded in their own cultural ways, making clothes and, and, um, and seeing math in their own cultural space and time. So that's very important for our students. So one thing mentioned in one of the early sections of the text is that math circles as a model focus on problems rather than exercises. And 
This is something that I've heard in different contexts as well, but because many listeners might not be familiar with the model, and because this book is part of the Math Circles Library, an MSRI series, I wondered if you could take a moment, um, any of the three of you, to describe the origins of Math Circles uh, and on the series and its mission. Yeah, so sure. Math Circles, um, at least the tradition that we have here, originated in the former Soviet Union um, about 100 years ago, maybe a little more. And it wasn't just math circles. There were circles on lots of different topics. Um, but one thing that was interesting about it was that um, it, was, it became a way for um, math professors and their students to um, seek freedom because, um, because they were doing math the government wouldn't look in on what they were doing or how they were doing it. And so they were able to form communities that um, were free and even in political senses, they were able, you know, close knit, forming a close knit community with future students who they were sort of grooming to be mathematicians. Um, that uh, tradition came here to the United States and, um, Mostly in the in the 1990s, there were sort of two branches of it, uh, one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. Um, Tatiana and Zvezda Stankova both um, started math circles pretty early on on the West Coast, um, and they had actually experienced those math circles in the former, uh, former Soviet Union um, themselves as children, and they brought it here. Um, on the East Coast, Bob and Ellen Kaplan actually started it about the same time, went out there. Theirs was a little different. Um, the children at, at a math at a Russian school asked them to found it, but they are Americans. They grew up here, and they're kind of old old hippies, if I can say that. So they, um, they uh, created something that was much more collaborative and less competitive, um, and so a little more open to... Uh, students from a wide variety of backgrounds. And so um, those two models kind of have met and mingled. And so it sort of forms what math circles are today in this country. There's no one way to do a math circle. Um, it's mostly the idea of mathematicians and students and teachers playing with rich problems. I can add some more to this. So First of all, the Kaplan program was the first program in the U.S. to use the moniker Math Circle. Other programs had been similar and run because it had been running in the world for 100 years. So, but also it's worth listing Paul Zeitz in, in the San Francisco uh, side. Um, Possibly Joshua Zucker was involved at the beginning there. Um, on the San Francisco side, they did include a math competition that they started at the same time as the math circles because they thought the two would play well together and they do collaborate. Some other things are one of the reasons I was able to build the math circle community or help build the math circle community from 20 to nearly 200 is there were people that were interested in funding and helping, which numbers of people were helped and supported by mathematics initially and then wanted to give back. And so Tom Layton funded the initial funding for the National Association of Math Circles, and I think also funded the uh, Math Circle Library through MSRI, uh, 
Nancy Blackman funded the Julia Robinson festivals, which when we talk about math festivals, is coming from there. And again, the festivals and the math also play very nicely and enrich. Another point that is rather unique to the U.S. is in the former Soviet Union, the math teachers had a lot more experience and teachers were specialized. You would be a math teacher, not an everything teacher like they are in the U.S. And so it was relatively easy to find people to lead math circles. The initial groups of people that thought about leading math circles thought that, well, we do the same thing here. It turned out that teachers didn't quite feel ready to lead them yet, but were very interested in participating. But if you mixed the teachers and the students, neither one would talk. The teacher didn't want to admit that they didn't know how to solve a problem in front of the students and vice versa. And so we separated. And the notion of a math teacher's circle was invented, I think, in the San Francisco Bay Area, part of Tatiana's program, and has really taken off and done wonderful things. So listeners take note that there are both, there are math circle programs available for students and for teachers. Uh Yes, yes. And if you follow our link, we can help you find them in your area. Um, One of your questions was to ask about the difference between uh, problems and exercises. I remember uh, I've met a lot of uh, awesome people in this community and looking and learning at how they exchange ideas is wonderful. Josh Zucker is one of them. And Josh described the difference of an exercise versus a problem, like in playing basketball. You might do dribbling drills, dribbling a ball around chairs to get better at fundamental skills. But playing a three-on-three pickup game, you're going to be more creative and figure out how to get through people. And if you're going to be good at basketball, you both want to play pickup games in the park and do drills of fundamentals. And so in the mathematics, if it all turns into practice multiplication, adding fractions, A, it's not a whole lot of fun. And B, you'll never get that extra inspired wow. So let's actually dig into the contents of the the book, the scripts. Um, the book contains several dozen, uh, I, I don't remember the exact count, but I thought we could go through a handful of them, some of which uh, uh, Dave and Amanda, you've contributed, just to get a feel for exactly, for the kind of, of, of content, of, um, of work, of concepts that are involved. So I believe the first script was contributed by Tatiana and is called Grid Power. So what sort of, let's say to begin with, what materials do you need to conduct the script in addition to the student handout itself? Graph paper (laughs) and pencils. (laughs) Which in, in fact, this is a great example of what we mean by low floor, high ceiling because you can hand out pieces of graph paper. If you're working with younger cribs, you use bigger grids. More advanced kids, you can use smaller squares. Okay. And then just ask them to think about it. What can you do? Of course, you can go almost anywhere with it. And so you can start out with small questions about counting areas, and you can get to crazy sophisticated mathematics, you know, uh, 
automorphic forms in the modular group just looking at a piece of graph paper. Um, Tatiana has in this script warm-up problems, which is a very typical thing in a math circle, is you might ask some warm-up problems just to get people thinking and to get the juices flowing. You'll notice that she has just five questions in the entire thing, but then when she writes about the questions and says some of the things you can do with them, she spends 16 pages talking about directions you can go with these five questions. Um, my particular take, this is probably the best way to introduce students to the Pythagorean theorem. If I ever have to teach somebody that's never seen the Pythagorean theorem before, I ask them to draw squares on graph paper and compute the areas. Once they think they know it because they're just doing squares that are parallel to the grid, uh, somebody will draw a square that's perpendicular, is not, doesn't yeah. line up with the grid. If I if nobody does, I'll draw one and then just be quiet. And the less I talk, the more they talk, the better things are going to go. This is actually something I'd like you to, to expand on a slight bit, because um, one of the consistent themes of these scripts is that the students are able and even if not encouraged, the scripts are very open to contributions that us, let's say a seasoned mathematician might not think to contribute. For example, drawing a square on a grid that doesn't follow the lines of the grid paper, but rather just connects uh, intersection points among them. And so there's a lot of this, for example, one of the questions I believe is how many squares or how many uh, will fit inside this, um, this section of grid paper. And the answer really depends on how you, what criteria you impose on a square in that picture. And so, in general, would you, um, what would you, could you comment on the, the contributions, and we'll come back to this especially in a later uh, script that I want to talk about, uh, the students, and what do the students contribute to the circle itself, and even in some cases to the book? Absolutely. Um, I sort of, I don't want to get ahead of us and jump into that other script, but uh, yeah, the students often come up with amazingly creative approaches that um, someone who's trained more traditionally, say, would never come up with because you just wouldn't allow yourself to think that way. And so that's one of the things that's really exciting is about just playing with these questions and with these simple opening gambits. Um, the students can take it in any direction, and it's always um, amazing to see what kinds of patterns they can notice and um, with one student is stuck, another, you know, other students uh, pick up the ball from them and move it a little further, and then the first student jumps back and, oh yeah, exactly that door, or no, that was what I went. Let's try, you know, it's more of a conversation, and it's more uh, like a, a natural uh, exploration as opposed to um, remembering a sequence of rules, which is more like a math exercise that you might see in a classroom. Where, oh, what do I? I don't own this myself, but I remember that I'm supposed to do something that had a formula that I kind of don't remember. Um, that's not really math, but what the students are doing in the math circles is really math. It's exploring and owning your own questions and owning the, your, the own pattern, you know, your own patterns that you noticed, and that's what it's really about. The, let me take off with some points here. Important things are things where you reason and figure things out 
often the most interesting things are things that people are discovering just for fun because they're thinking through an area. And this can happen at any area or time. It's much more important to teach people how to ask questions, encourage them to ask questions and what if, than to tell them questions. Because if I'm telling them questions, you know, it's like I'm telling things that are already known. We want to discover new knowledge. We're not interested in the things that you can ask your smartphone, you know, what is 37 times 83, and it tells you the answer, or you can read it a story problem. We're interested in the thought process, and this kind of levels the playing field, because if you come up with some area where people haven't thought through about what the details are, then it's not like the math teacher who's been teaching the material is going to know the answers because they've been working on it. Hey, it's a brand new area, and now it's just about thinking. So this helps give people confidence because they realize that they do it. It also motivates them. If they're picking what they want to do, they can solve it. And if they discover that they need to know something else, when a student's thinking about a problem and then they say, wait, what is the area of a trapezoid? They say, well, here's a trapezoid and a pair of scissors. Can you cut it and think it? They figure it out on their own because they want to know it, not because somebody tells them about it. They build confidence and they're building ownership and the ability to think creatively and analytically on new problems that they haven't or perhaps that nobody has thought about before. And as a math circle leader, we often do bring questions that we don't know um, all the answers to or that we want the students to help us think about in more depth. Um, we usually want to make sure, especially if it's a new group, we want to make sure that there's something interesting there, um, that there's some thing that we think that they can, can discover, some things, but we don't want to um, dictate necessarily the direction that it ends up going in. And uh, we also want to make, leave it open for them to push it further than we have done ourselves. Um, just thinking about it more or thinking about it a different way or asking new questions, finding different examples, uh, finding counterexamples, that kind of thing. Now, the book does mention, I think at the beginning of the scripts, there's this distinction between facilitation and teaching. And that was a very good, I think, conceptual uh, uh, distinction to make. Uh, since we haven't discussed it yet, um, could you say in just a mo for just a moment, like what is the format of a math circle? We've talked about a motivation and how they've spread, but what is it like to be in one? Um, I mean, I think that the best um, way to describe it is that you are having the freedom to try things and to be wrong and to make wild guesses and to kind of, um, uh, well, also a big part of this is being willing to confront your own anxiety about not knowing answers already, because uh, there's a lot of that. <laughs> um, so, you know, really being able to be fully human with a with a problem as opposed to um, following only in the footsteps of people who've already done it a certain way. Uh, so it, it really is, it's a, it's meant to be a more human experience than a so, typical classroom experience with math. So in order to achieve that, what, what is the role, what is the, the in-person role of the facilitator and how is the time typically spent? Uh, I've heard some people, 
will say, I forget who, this might be uh, coming from Paul Zeitz, is like, okay, you give yourself uh, five points every time uh, students interrupt and take over and talk for three minutes. You take away 10, mi 10 points every time you talk for two minutes, etc. Kind of gives a point scale on how to lead, which is highly, highly weighted towards just letting the students think and run and go with it. And so the role of the facilitator is to help the communication, to have the students write down their guesses, their conjectures, their arguments to present them. You want to just present enough curious and funny looking stuff to get them hooked and get them started and then encourage them and keep them going. Another thing that's good is to... Um get them to cross fertilize ideas. So in a classroom, you know, in a master goal, um, if, if suppose they're all working in small groups to think about a problem, what will often happen is, you know, this group over here have been approaching it from a very geometric standpoint and they have something, it's not, they're having a little bit of trouble with it, but they have an idea. And this group has been approaching it from a more algebraic standpoint and they're also kind of stuck. Well, getting them to share, well, uh, you know, you should ask them because, you know, let's let's get your group up there to, to present to the whole group. So just knowing when to pull them back because there is some useful sort of cross-pollination that could be occurring within the larger group. Um, so you're mostly just sort of deciding when it's time to pull everybody back together, send them back out again, um, so that you can keep the thought process moving forward and mix the ideas around in the room enough so that um, interesting um, progress can be made you know, when they merge these different approaches they've been taking and compare notes. And another feature is it doesn't have to be so narrowly age-confined. You can have very successful math circles running with three- and four-year age spans, some students having experience in math circles, others who don't, where some of our greatest successes in the NAVO program is students that come in and are the quiet the first year they attend the camp, they attend it more the next year, and they're like the team captains, and they are solving the problems, and then they're going off to other bigger and better programs after three or four years with this new confidence and motivation. Yeah. I, I think it's also bring um, trust to, to each other because sometimes um, they feel like um, they're weak in math and they don't want to display that side of who they are, but the more that they interact and the more that they share ideas, the more that they open um, to each other and they build that relationship through um, a common that they see, a pattern that they develop and they see the pattern is uh, emerging and that brings um, more dialogue and that dialogue turns into trust and I think um, once they see a problem, they begin to um, use their ref uh, to reflect more on the previous experience and take that to a new level together as a group when they learn um, math from as a facilitator. You want to encourage um, them to speak the math, to speak the math language. We encourage them to um, 
use some of the um, the power that they have within themselves, which is their group leader, to regroup and to refocus and to bring the attention back to the problem if they are moving in the wrong direction. But it's a peer interaction. That relationship is really strong when that peer, the peer um, own reflection of uh, moving forward together that brings that enlightenment in each of the students. Um, that growth develops that way. Yeah. Yeah, Henry's observation here about math wrangles in particular when um, the, the students aren't allowed to get really any input beyond interpretation of the question from the adults. And the adults have to mostly mostly stay out of the way and occasionally poke them to write more and explain more, but not without get, without giving any feedback on the problems until the final Friday. So usually they spend um, a week, uh, an hour in the morning, an hour in the afternoon, sometimes a little more, um, working on these uh, set of usually eight problems. They get two a day and really tackling them and digging in. And um, Henry's um, talking a little bit about the um, leadership that emerges among the students so that the team captain, um, you know, and other members of the group really have to go around among their team. Okay, who's working on what? And are we confident? And let's have you explain it to them. And okay, well, they, they see a flaw or they see another example, that kind of thing. Uh, it, uh, th that math wrangle format we have found to be very effective in um, mostly getting us out of the way more because um, Sometimes even with a, in a masterful, it's uh, too tempting to say too much. Um, but let but this lets them wrestle with it the full week um, with us kind of out of the way um, and leads to um, a lot more confidence, I think, in the students. It's been amazing to see uh, how well the students do with math wrangles. Usually that kind of brings them out of uh, their shell right away. So keeping in mind your own experiences with math circles, I wanted to move on to one called Math Blocks, which Dave authored or contributed to the collection. Um, and this is will be familiar to anyone who reads about proofs without words. There are several books on this topic. Um, but I was, and it's been a while since I read them, to be honest. Um, but Dave, could you talk a little bit about this script? And especially, uh, I'm interested in the addition and multiplication tables you can generate out of, I mean, out of grid paper, but then build into these block models. Sure. And so one of the joys of the math circle community is you don't teach in isolation. You get to work with other teachers and see what they do in instructors and ideas. And I've mentioned Josh before. Josh described making the addition table or the multiplication table out of Legos. Um, that works pretty well, but Legos are can be a little bit pricey and they're not perfect cubes. But if you go to a hobby store, you can buy big bags of uh, wooden cubes cheap. Um, uh, oh, Harold Ritter uh, pointed that out to me. And so I just got huge bags of cubes make puzzles, and you can let students play with these things. And so an introductory exercise is just a random blob of cubes and cubes in an array. You give them to two students and let them count each pile. And obviously the one that puts them in the array counts them quicker because they're organized. And so now you can start organizing. And 
things like many people don't understand why you would uh, say a negative number times a negative number is a positive number. I've never seen anybody spend the 20 minutes it takes to build the multiplication out a table out of wooden cubes and use some black cubes where you can dig out bedrock, which I tend to make that model ahead of time, that they can add on who suddenly doesn't see it. When you have the model there, and you see you step up, you step up, you step up, okay, and when I go this way, I go down, down, down. You know, so when I go north, south, I can go up and uh, down. When I go east, west, up and down, and well, then when I combine these things together, it's gotta have two towers there, kind of like the Tolkien movies and book, and th there's just no way it could fit together other than that, um, which, Having somebody discover it instead of being told it is a wonderful thing. And there's problems that go, you know, at the end, I'm using Bernoulli numbers to compute the sums of the powers of the integers. In fact, that was taken out of a hundred page paper I wrote with a co author on something called Kopak Kumar Vafa Pilargian Duality. And so you can take something from research mathematics to students and you can play with it at all levels as long as you're willing to look and play. You know, something That's interesting about that, um, that script is, like you said, you have a tactile physical model of negative multiplication, of multiplication with positive and negative numbers. And we're familiar, or at least I'm familiar with using um, payments and debt as concepts to introduce the idea of negatives and how they multiply, but I've never, until this book, come across a physical model. Uh-huh. And, you know, some of the stuff is just mathematical folklore, you know, writing down the square of the binomial, A plus B squared, drawing a picture of that is something that almost any mathematician or math teacher would have done, but taking it further and coming up with how to draw the pictures, it's a lot easier if you have something to play with. It's fun to play with toys. Some of the mathematical greats, John Conway, Bill Thurston, would knit things, make things with wires. It, it's something you do as a human experience because you like it and you're engaged in it and you want to play with it. And Having things to play with, things with interesting properties, is going to lead you in interesting directions. So let's jump over to another contribution. Um, this one by Bob Klein and Tatiana. Mm -hmm. Is that right? So this one's called Parity and Other Invariance. And I specifically yeah. wanted to bring this one up because it does introduce invariance, which are a tool that elementary users of mathematics or conductors of mathematics use implicitly, but we don't normally isolate, we don't normally focus on the fact that we're using invariance as part of that elementary education, even though it's essential and um, ex uh, ubiquitous in, 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 in research mathematics. This idea really does come, I think, from the Russian tradition. Um, Russian math circle leaders often organized sessions in exactly that way to highlight mathematical tricks of the trade or, or tools to develop for their students that go across the surface level of the math problem, you know, the surface level mathematics or uh, that's involved to an underlying technique 
that they want their students to learn, like noticing um, that in a specific problem, um, it goes up, down, up, down, or on, off, on, off, or anything else that is, you know, has two different states. And that idea comes up all, all over the place. There are lots of things that end up being organized in that way. And so being able to recognize that underlying structure and having some tools uh, and, and proof techniques that you can use to think about them turns out to be very powerful beyond just one problem. And so that's a reason for doing it is to see, um, to start to see, you know, build up this toolkit um, as There's a mathematician. There's some points I'd love to make about this. First of all, um, one of the points about this is it's so important to think about how to think in ideas, in variances, an idea or a notion. And the way it's also uncovered in school mathematics is even in odd and just identify, is this number even? Is this number odd? And it just sort of stops and who cares? Another point about that is Tatiana often thinks, well, she'll go with a certain age group, but she doesn't want to go down too young because she's not sure she has activities. She's actually really wonderful and people will engage with her. But this activity in particular is magnificent with even the youngest, I mean, you can do this with two, three, four, five-year-old children. The first time I saw this was, I think, at the 2010 or 2011 Circle on the Road, probably 2011. I saw Ashley Allen, Julia Brodsky, Maria Druskova, her daughter Maria Brodsky, uh, uh, so Julia's daughter, and um, Emily McCullough were running a session where we were running the public in to a public math festival and they would come and they had this set out with like post-it stickers on the ground and they would have different colors that they could flip and color and do like a magic trick. They had a tricks where they'd stick coins in hands and it flipped things over and cups and they had a whole collection of these things at the very simplest level. What I'd call is one for you, one for me, Nim. We give a pile of stones or rocks or jelly beans and two kids. You take one, you take one, you take one, you take one. Who's going to take the last one? And it's such a easy thing for them to understand. One for me, one for you, one for me. To be fair, it has to be evenly divided. And who's going to win this? That a three-year-old will very quickly pick up the pattern because they know what is fair and what the even numbers are. And so then the three-year-old who's thought about it for four minutes with a facilitator can suddenly beat mom or dad or big sister or brother in a little parody game like this and gets just so much joy out of it. And that, that's what it really is about, is watching these things. In this particular script, the emphasis is more on problems for middle school, maybe high school students, but just knowing that you can twist the knob up and down and Right. So, the, uh, the, 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 the section or the script begins with four, I think, games that um, the participants are invited to play. But you're right. They, 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 are, they are more complex than um, the I take one, you take one game you just described. But they rely on very much the same sort of principle to allow the players to eventually arrive at a solution. Um, 
so that they know exactly how to make it turn out the way they want. I should also give a Navajo connection. I took Remy uh, Molinier uh, to the Navajo Nation. He's a mathematician in France in the University of Grenoble. You have visitors from all over the world. And together we ran parody problems, for instance, in Indian Wells. I remember we did it at many different schools. And so we were doing this with first and second, maybe third graders with different puzzles with goldfish. Sometimes we would take them out with big cards in front of the school where they could flip things over flipping cups, uh, running them in and out of the rooms, doing sort of magic tricks of who was the last person here, which I can tell because we did it in patterns. Mm -hmm. It just, you end up with a bunch of happy children who are experiencing math in a way that is new and wants them looking, leaves them looking for more. So before we run out of time, I do want to touch upon one more script, and that is a contribution of Amanda's called the HL Protein Folding Model. This was later in the, in the text, which I think means that it's one of the more complicated scripts, one of the more advanced in subject matter and intended maybe for older ages. Is that right? I mean, it's still for middle school kids, so not really. Um, it's, uh, the, the arguments are longer. Guess I would say so. They require a little more attention span. Um, so, in that sense, um, maybe a little bit older than, say, elementary school. Okay. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, it's it's basically building um, a toy model of proteins that can then be folded onto a grid. It's a toy model that was actually invented by biochemists. You know, real proteins fold in three dimensions, and they don't use ninety degree angles, but they um, it's actually usually called HP protein folding in the literature, um, but we changed the name because uh, because we felt like it. So anyway, but the HP protein folding uh, model was a way for uh, biochemists to start thinking about um, what to get a handle on the questions of how these things could fold up and when you would get a unique configuration that minimizes the energy um, with us where there's a specific criterion for what would minimize the energy. And so um, basically we're taking strips of paper, you know, cardstock and little circles representing the hydrophilic and the hydrophobic amino acids and brass fasteners. And they're twisting those to make, to to, uh, fit into a grid shape and then attaching hydrogen bonds. If there are ever two proteins that are adjacent in the grid, but not already connected by the chain. Uh, of the spine of the, the chain that you have. And um, the, you're trying to maximize the bond score because uh, the uh, getting the hydrophobic amino acids clustered inside and bound together minimizes the energy of the system. That's the uh, overall idea. And so then we're studying um, which kinds of configurations or which kinds of chains have a unique configuration and which ones don't. And so um, we had the students working to um, play with a bunch of these chains that we hadn't thoroughly explored before and discovered lots of, um, you know, excellent examples and proofs that either their example was the best that could be done or it isn't quite yet. We can't quite prove that this is the best, but it's the best we found, which is what math research looks like. Sometimes 
um, you're almost there, but you can't quite prove it. So there's a bunch of contributions from students, uh, middle school and high school students from the math camp um, who uh, made a little bit of progress on that problem and an invitation for other people who'd like to push it a little further. And so I thought of this script as, in, w- in one sense, an introduction to real, uh, or let's say, mathematics research methodology without the extensive onboarding that's often necessary to get students involved in, for instance, an REU program or some other research experience when they're contributing to, um, uh, to the literature. Not to say that these, uh, that these puzzles don't uh, warrant contributions to the literature. And so actually it occurs to me to ask, um, have, have you or other facilitators had students contribute to uh, solutions or interesting attempts at these, at these sorts of um, scripts that uh, influenced or contributed to um, published literature? So I have done that, but I usually do it with students that I have for a longer period of time than I usually have the Navajo students. And so um, while they did contribute to this book, um, you know, their results are published there, um, we, we, I usually only have maybe two sessions with the kids on a given topic in a, in a given camp because they get other sessions on other topics. Um, and so I can't, I don't have very long to develop a single one um, with them or an opportunity to develop further. My, my master goal students here in Indiana, we do publish things together. So we write things up and, um, you know, write theorems and, you know, work on the process of writing it as a paper more. So something that can emerge from a math circles program. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Definitely. Neat. Um, so with those example scripts, um, I did want to ask one more question. Uh, if there's a, if there is a story behind the cover photo of the book. So this is a stark cover for a mathematics textbook. Yeah. It's a photo there of a... There is not. They asked us to submit some photos, and we did. I think Henry submitted some rugs. But in the end, the AMS um, has a composition department that does a really nice job in producing the books, and somebody in their department picked the photo and stuck it there. Okay. Well, for those interested, um, it's a picture of cacti and yellow flowers. I wish I uh, had identified the species, but um, something that maybe we can include in the notes. My, oh. So one more question uh, before we get to the closing questions is that since the book consists mostly of scripts used to guide educators, facilitators in their own math circles, um, I wonder if you could, if you've received feedback from facilitators who've used the book or used other resources? I mean, I definitely have um, heard from people who've used it. Um, but I, I guess I'm not sure what kind of feedback you mean. They, they were excited to use it and they had they were enjoying using it. I didn't um, get more specific feedback, I guess, on it. Also, um, this came out in January of 2019. 19, 19, I think. Yeah. Yeah, And then, well, and then COVID hit in 2020. So we haven't had, um, like a lot of people weren't able to use it since it's come out. That's the other thing that is, um, you know, (laughs) gotten in the way of us. But in any case, um, I do know that a lot of these activities, I would want, I do want to mention uh, the, the, the um, modular, the beanbag tossing activity, which is related to modular arithmetic, which is in there. 
Um, that one was used by uh, several of the math circle leaders, um, from teachers from Navajo Nation, with their own students in their own circles that they lead during the year. And um, one circle in particular, I know, used that one for like weeks. They kept going with that one. Um, and you can toss bean bags um, as the starting thing, but um, pretty quickly it becomes useful to draw, use sidewalk chalk to draw the numbers and check off where things are going because you're trying to figure out um, if the tossing number is two, it means it's going to skip every other one around the circle and you want to figure out who is going to catch all of, you know, which uh, people are going to catch that beanbag in different cases. And um, that project really captured the imagination of the kids. They loved going outside and using the sidewalk talk and working on these problems all over the playground and uh, filling in this big monster chart and trying to come up with conjectures and theorems uh, to fit the patterns they noticed there. Um, and I know that I will, another site also really enjoyed using it as well. I will also remark that that is used in many, many math circles, more than maybe Amanda's aware of even, as an introduction in an icebreaker. It's a great way to say hello to a new group of students. Brandy and Emily came into our Yakima math camp in the Yakima Nation in Washington. Took a basketball and passed it from person to person, but in a pattern of skipping. So you could just say your name and throw the basketball, and then you start thinking about the math as you throw in the basketball and introducing yourself. Um, another thing that happens with that is it's incredibly similar. I mean, mathematically, it's the same idea as the it, not it um, exercise in write-up of Dan Finkel in Math for Love. That's another magnificent organization that does very cool stuff. Um, and, you know, that's the kind of thing when you're picking people for a game on a playground where you go, in and not in, in, not in, around a circle to pick who the teams are, or if you're splitting into three teams, any kid has done this on a playground, but now if you see it as math in different ways, off it goes. So you've already mentioned some pieces of literature, I guess I should call it, that, that um, make good companions to this book. But I like to close with that question, which is, is there, anything, is there any other piece of work, whether it's media or scholarship, that you might think is a good companion to this uh, collection of scripts? So James Tanton has Inspiring Mathematics and a book, Math Galore, has an older book, Solve This. The Julia Robinson Math Activities have posted many activities online. There's many that they used to have online that they don't post because they're trying, I think, to clean them up and make them uh, look a little bit more professional. Uh, all of the titles in the Math Circles Library is a very good source of activities. That, um, Gordon Hamilton's Math that. Pickle site is also Thank fantastic. You. Yes. Um, for that, yeah. Um, I mean, other, there are lots of wonderful books. Um, I mean, Bob and Ellen Kaplan's book, Out of the Labyrinth, is a really nice exposition about what a math circle is and how to lead it. Um, math Renaissance by Rody Steinick is also a great book for the, um, a, you know, similar thing, sort of exploring questions about the difference between a math circle approach and traditional math education and um, its impact on students and, you know, 
Um, that book also specializes in ideas for very young students, which is nice. Cut the Knot is a beautiful math website. Math Etudes is, uh, goes to a Russian site with many things that gets us back to our Russian math circle roots. Um, there's a whole bunch of resources. If you go to the Navajo Math Circles website, we have a resources page that lists activities, lessons, uh, chunk for teachers. You can always send email to me as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so to close the conversation, I wanted to ask what projects you're working on now. Henry, do you want to start with that? Well, we're going to continue to um, promote um, math education for now. The audience is not just Navajo students. It's going to be um, indigenous um, students across the 50 states. So we're at um, the four corners of the United States. And recently, not too long ago, um, just to spin off the um, Navajo Masterclass, we have the um, Alliance of Indigenous Masterclass, which is um, covers other indigenous people, community members. And so that's a, a project it, itself as well, too. And also, um, my long-term vision is um, where I grew up on the Navajo Nation, Tonalia, Arizona, is to build a math laboratory. That's always been my vision, where mathematicians would come and they would be the incubator. So they incubate the system and with their knowledge and their experience and really hone on to produce math curriculum and that is indigenous perspective and, and use that resource as a supplementary in school districts. So that's a project of its own too as well. Amanda, do you wanna? Amanda. Oh. Yeah. So I'm the director of Riverbend Community Math Center here in South Bend, Indiana. And we have a lot of projects all the time. Um, uh, we have math circles. We have work in schools directly trying to um, improve access in high poverty communities to advanced math pathways. Um, we have a collaboration with students in Chicago in the Chicago Science and Engineering Program. Um, which is focused on Black and Latino students and providing them with pathways to STEM careers starting when they're very young in kindergarten. Um, we're not, um, it's their program. We're helping with uh, some of the math for the oldest uh, students in that program. And um, we're working right now in a partnership with them to bring Chicago students here to work with our students and students from Urbana-Champaign uh, to do a um, project relating to solving problems in STEM relating to transportation, things like transportation deserts and um, renewable energy uh, sources for vehicles and things like that. So it, the students will design their own projects um, in that program. Um, I also have a, a program for uh, a sort of a STEM outreach program for fourth through eighth graders that we're working very hard on to uh, that builds interesting mathematical um, 
concepts into uh, physical tasks relating to electric, uh, digital electronics and programming and other things like that. So instead of sort of dodging around the math, which often happens at that age level, just embracing the mathematics that comes up naturally when you're trying to solve problems in those areas. And Dave? I have an ongoing and now fairly large collaborative research project on mathematical gauge theory. Um, in my outreach, I well, I always mentor undergraduates on undergraduate research. Um, sustaining the Navajo Nation Math Circles project takes a lot of time and effort. I'm always interested in people that want to help out and be part of our organization. If somebody's hearing this podcast and is interested, reach out to me. Fundraising, unfortunately, takes time, and it's a, an impoverished community, and so we have to rely on grants and donations from the people that have, and so I'm always working to raise funds to keep it alive. Um, I'm also slowly working on a new book for the Math Circles Library, and maybe in a couple of years I'll have something else to read. I look forward to hearing about the new book, and I hope to look forward to the. I look forward to hearing about the Mathematics Lab as well. Uh, I should have also mentioned. I'm sorry. Um, uh, two more collaborations. We're trying to get a collaboration going with Beam, which is a wonderful organization that runs in New York in LA. Also with Jaidev Arithia, um, I've been working to try to build a similar program in Washington State, which we are starting to get up and then the health crisis hit. So I think we're going to have to restart, but slowly. Thank you all then. I've been talking with Dave Ockley, Amanda Serenevi and Henry Fowler, who contributed to the new book, Inspiring Mathematics, Lessons from the Navajo Nation Math Circles, published by AMS and MSRI in 2019. Dave, Amanda, Henry, thank you very much again for joining me. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Thank you.